Each episode of Keys for SLPs has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com, registered for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. A special coupon code is available for listeners of this podcast. Type the word KEYS for $20 off an audio course subscription. This audio course subscription gives access to all existing and new audio courses from speechtherapypd.com. With more than 200 hours of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it is only $59 per year with the code KEYS. Visit go speechtherapypd.com slash keys for more information and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Hello, welcome to Keys for SLPs, a weekly audio course and podcast from speechtherapypd.com, exploring keys for speech language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, SLP and certified orofacial myologist experienced in rehab outpatient, school, and private practice settings. As a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning, I'm excited to discuss information to help you excel as a professional. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals and caregivers to discuss practical therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field of speech-language pathology as we discuss a wide variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Welcome to another episode of Keys for SLPs. Today, I am pleased to have Kamika Barnes as our guest for this episode, Keys to Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion in Speech-Language Pathology. Before we get started, here are the disclosures. Mary Beth Hines is the host of the Keys for SLPs podcast and receives compensation from speechtherapypd.com. She is a member of ASHA Special Interest Groups 2 and 13 and the International Association of Orofacial Myology. Kamika Barnes receives compensation for this episode. Kamika is an employee of Orange County Department of Education and a member of ASHA. Kamika Barnes, MSCCC SLP, is the coordinator of the Orange County Department of Education Early Education Programs Special Education Division. Kamika holds a Bachelor of Arts and Masters of Science in Communicative Disorders from the University of Redlands. In her 22 years as an educator, Kamika has held a variety of roles, including speech-language pathologist, special education administrator, clinical supervisor, university faculty, and related services coordinator. Currently, She provides professional development, technical assistance, and interagency coordination services in support of early childhood and elementary special education programs within Orange County. She also coordinates speech and language services for the Orange County Department of Education Special Schools and Audiological Services. Kamika continues to work as part of collaborative teams to help develop procedures, policies, and intervention plans for a diverse population of children and adults with disabilities. She is actively engaged in increasing cultural competence and awareness and is part of the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Workgroup at Orange County Department of Education. Kamika is dedicated to ensuring that all students have access to high-quality education. She is passionate about culture and diversity, inclusive education, meeting the needs of diverse learners, and collaborative partnerships. So welcome, Kamika Barnes. I'm so excited to have you as a guest on our 10th episode of Keys for SLPs. I can't believe that we have hit this milestone already. 
And as with any milestone, this 10th episode has offered a pause for reflection. I just want to say what an honor it has been to be the host of this podcast and to thank Yumi Kim and all the team at SpeechTherapyPD.com for this opportunity. One of my favorite parts of hosting Keys for SLPs is collaborating with the team as well as the guests who are experts in their field to create each episode. When I was thinking about our guest today in this 10th episode, I realized that Kamika and I have not just been collaborating for the past few weeks to create this episode, but we have really been collaborating for the past 24 years to create this episode. The story of our friendship, our love of speech language pathology, and how we did or did not talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion through the years have all contributed to the collaboration on this episode today. Wow, I can't believe we've been friends for 24 years. That's crazy. (laughs) I know. It is crazy. It is crazy. I mean, how time flies. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about that friendship and why that has anything to do with this episode. (laughs) So we met in grad school. And I can't remember like when we became friends in grad school, but I think it was, I I remember just hitting it off at the very beginning, thinking so much of you because not only were you going to grad school, but you were taking care of three kids at home. Yes, I was. Three little ones that are now adults. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a nice thing. (laughs) So anyway... We became friends in grad school and we've stayed friends all these years. And we, at certain times, like joked about our cultural differences, but I don't think we ever really talked about it until last fall. I would agree. It's, I think just the time at that time when we were, you know, developing our friendship and then even into our friendship, it just wasn't something you talked about. It was kind of, I always kind of think back and think we grew up in that time when being colorblind or kind of not noticing people's differences was the politically correct thing to do. So we thought we were being polite by ignoring it, but, and maybe we were in the context of those times, but we realized that that wasn't the right thing to do. And so I think it was last fall that I gave you a call and we're just to explain we're in different parts of the country. So you know, some years we talk more than others, but I really probably called just kind of out of the blue. And we had a pleasant conversation as friends do. And then at one point I said, Kamika, how are you feeling with all of this, with everything that's gone on? And I think that was the first time that conversation, which we were on the phone for about an hour or so, that was probably the first time we really ever talked. Yeah. I totally agree. It was just not something we always talked about, like the kids and family and our career and what was going on in our life that when we did catch up with each other, but that was definitely never a subject that we communicated about any with race or culture or any of those types of things. And it's very interesting that we noticed that in the way today I can look back on how much that does impact my life. And it's just interesting because I do consider you a very good friend and it's just not a part of my life that I ever shared with you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I probably felt, actually I did. I have to admit, like, I was like, I have to call when everything wo- that was going on and let's talk a little bit about what was going on, you know, last year and what is going on, but particularly everything that was going on last summer with George Floyd 
I was like, I really need to talk to Kamika about this. But I, as good friends as we are, I hesitated to give you a call and introduce that topic. And I can't exactly say why, but it's something that's hard for us to talk about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it was hard, probably the timing and probably because of our friendship, it was an okay conversation for you and I to have. And I think it was kind of further into the process of processing everything with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and just all of that was happening during that time. Honestly, probably if you had called out or reached out to me earlier when things had just started to happen, I probably wouldn't have been open for that conversation. So it definitely, timing for us worked out, but it's definitely, I can understand why you would be hesitant to call. And I think in the initial phases of processing all of that, I probably would not have been able to have the conversation that we did start to have at that point. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And how did you feel? Share with us how you felt last summer, which was different, as you described to me, different than the way you had ever felt before. Very interesting. It's one of those things where what happened with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and you know, I could do a laundry list of names. It's not new information to us or to me. It's always something that we've known has been going on and happening. But I don't think, I think because of COVID, because we were all home, mm-hmm. I think it was more put out in the forefront of the media. So it was more in your face type of situation. And I think with that, just being who I am. And then we had started this diversity and equity and inclusion work group here at my workplace, even prior to George Floyd, this group was started earlier. And so we had already started to have some of these conversations about the reality. And I remember that maybe the day after a couple of days after we had a work group meeting and I wasn't sure I was going to get on the work group because it just was so painful to talk about. And that video with George Floyd, even though in the back of your mind, you know, things like this happen all the time and are still happening. Unfortunately, yes. Like that Mm -hmm. was very raw and very, you know, very painful. And so it just opened up a lot of old kind of scars and old thoughts and just reminded me personally that as a mother of a black son, as a sister of Black brothers, as a wife of a Black husband, that they're not safe. And Mm. that was a really, really kind of feeling that I had not really let myself feel before until that time. Kamika, thank you for sharing. And that's just one more reason why it is so important for us to talk about this topic. What is diversity, equity, and inclusion? So I think that term... It's used a lot now. And so I think it's important to understand where it's coming from in your, for you personally, and then for whatever organization and things like that, that you work for. So, you know, you really want to, diversity is looking at variety of different groups of people, individuals, you know, gender, race, ethnicity, sexuality, all of those things make up diversity. Right. So we have a diverse group of people that we interact with on a daily basis and recognizing that diversity and promoting that diversity is very important. And then equity is making sure that everybody gets what they need, not 
equal, right? Equal does not mean equitable. And a lot of people confuse those two terms or use them interchangeably, and they're not interchangeable. Equity is understanding that certain people do have privilege and that that privilege plays into their success or plays into the opportunities that are provided for them just naturally. Not everybody has that. And so looking at how do we make our workplace, our environment, our community equitable for everybody. And that just doesn't include, again, that includes all of those diverse groups that we talked about for women. I mean, that's something that we've, you know, been struggling with for years of having an equitable pay, you know. So it's that term and making sure you understand that term when you're talking about. And inclusion is intentional. So inclusion is being intentional about those things about looking at those things, about looking at your policies and procedures, and making sure that you are providing that equitable opportunity for all groups of people, either in your organization, in your community, in your personal life. You know, it's going to look different, obviously, for everybody. And it's going to look different for your community and who you're around. But it's really just always, it's an ongoing journey that you're looking across those three areas and kind of making sure that you are part of the the process in improving and increasing those things. Okay. Thank you for that clarification. That was very concise. Now let's look at diversity, equity, and inclusion within the field of speech-language pathology. How does this relate to us? So I think this is something that I've just been probably recently looking at. Going through the program when I became a speech-language pathologist, never really paid attention to that idea of diversity. And I don't even think in my immediate work, starting work, did I pay attention to that. You know, Mm -hmm. it wasn't kind of something I really thought of. Now in graduate school... We were a little diverse, but you were the only Black student, right? So we had, I don't know if you remember, we did have one Black male that started with us. Oh, but he didn't continue. He didn't continue. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yes. And thinking back on him, you know, I have some thoughts now that obviously I have then. (laughs) And just the idea of why he didn't continue and were the supports and things in place that would have allowed him to continue in our programs. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's something that I look at now, um, having been at the university level and looking at applications and doing the, the whole admissions process and those types of things, I can see where we have some work to do in that area. We are looking for a specific student based on, you know, a grade point average, based on the ability to do extracurricular types of activities in terms of volunteering. And and this is not just the speech pathology program. I mean, this is universities, right? Right, This is what you have to do. But when you look at a diverse group of people, not everybody has those opportunities. Not everybody has the ability to go above and beyond to, you know, do extra work above They may have to have a part-time job when they're in school. They may have to have different things to help support themselves or their families. I was a non-traditional student. I did not have my parents paying for me to go to school. I was a young mom and I had three little babies to support. And so I needed to work full-time and or part-time. And that wasn't typical. And especially for our program. Right, (laughs) right, right. 
Kamika, you have mentioned the need for systemic changes within graduate schools in order to attract more diverse students to our field. One challenge during graduate school for you that we've talked about was the need to maintain a part-time job while fulfilling all requirements outside the classroom. Yes. So it was interesting because, again, something didn't even really think about at the time, but there was no policy in place to prevent part-time work at that time. But it wasn't something that was the norm. Mm -hmm. And so as all of us know, who've gone through a traditional program, master's level program, you know, the expectation is that you do clinics, you do, you're available, right? You're mm-hmm, available mm-hmm. all the time. Right, <laughs> and right. for me, because I was working part-time and I have to say, I was working in a job that was actually benefiting my growth as a speech therapist, because I was working as a speech therapist in the school setting on a waiver, which California allowed at that time. So I was getting hours. Right, right. <laughs> and great experience. <laughs> yeah. And you probably still use a little bit of that experience today in your yeah, work. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it was so beneficial after I graduated and, you know, looking for a job, but it just wasn't typical. And so the expectation that I could not do clinic during certain times or wasn't available during certain times was not looked upon very fondly. And I remember that I wasn't the only student. There were other students that were doing the same thing for the same reasons. You know, they had to work and support themselves. We had a very interesting class in that we had a lot of people on their second career. Like they were doing this as a second career. So they were adults taking care of themselves and putting themselves through this program. So they were working. And so that was just a very challenging situation, I think, at the time from a traditional model where your whole focus is being in grad school, you're not working, you know, I don't know who's paying for the program, but someone's paying for it somehow without working. But the reality is that does not make our programs equitable or accessible is actually a better word. It does not make it accessible to others, to a diverse group of students, because that is a privilege to be able to go to a graduate level school program, not have to work and be able to pay for that program. And if you are in any way non-traditional, so not the young student living at home with their parents, you are supporting yourself and you need money to live. And so it just makes it not accessible. And we're missing out on so many different types of people by not making it right. accessible. Right. So there are some programs that are are online, Mm -hmm. but I feel like anyone should be able to, you know, online learning is not for everyone. Right. And Mm -hmm. and just because you have to work, you shouldn't have to go online if you don't choose to. So hopefully programs will be looking at this from a diversity, equity and inclusion model and see how that can change. And as we said, some have already changed, but it Mm -hmm. is interesting to your experience is very interesting and very telling of where speech language pathology in our field is today. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I think you're right. I've seen some programs where they, like you said, they're online. Some are doing a hybrid type of model where they're, the classes are in the evening so that people can work during the day. I believe, I'm not 100% sure, so don't quote me on this, but I believe ASHA is has changed their policy and that you can 
be paid for hours now. Oh, so I didn't know that. Are, That's great. Yeah. So if you are working part-time or something as a SLP, you can be getting paid for those. Because I know back when we were in school, I didn't get to count any of those hours because the policy was that you could not be paid for your hours, which again, why? Right, right, right. <laughs> why do you have to give your time for free? Um, you yeah. know, but I think it was just that something that had always been, you know, and until we start looking at those. And I think ASHA has been doing a really, really good job at looking at those types of situations and looking at diversity and looking at ways and looking at their policies. Are there policies in place that they have put in place that are preventing reaching this diverse group of people. And so I've se- I've even seen in the last couple of years just the work that they're doing, which I think is great that they're actually looking at that and actively making changes to, mm-hmm. to ensure that we do have this diversity, equity, and inclusion in our professional organization. Absolutely. And why is this so important that our field is diverse? Well, if you think about who you're interacting with, right? So your clientele, whether you're in the schools, whether you're a university professor, whether you're working in the hospital or the clinic, you are going to be interacting with a diverse group of people. You are going to be interacting with, I mean, in this day and time and the way our system is working, and especially now even with virtual therapy, you know, mm-hmm. teletherapy really taking off, you can see people all over the world. And so if our field is not diverse, how are we interacting with a diverse group of people if we don't have a diverse field, if we don't have males in our field, which that's an area in our field, that's the opposite, right? right? <laughs> so we don't have men in our field. We don't have a large number of people of color in our field. And if you look at the clientele that you work with, more than likely you will have a lot of boys that you're seeing as classic. Yeah, well, that's a very good point. <laughs> you just look at it from a gender perspective. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, I think it's, and this is something I learned as an adult that I am reflecting back on having people, and not that you only have to interact with people that look like you, that's not what I'm saying, but having people that look like you in different interactions that you have, whether it's education, whether it's there's a comfort in that. Mm-hmm. And so if you see a field that's completely not reflective of you, why would you want to A, go into that field? Because it doesn't seem like that field accepts people that look like you. So, you know, it's kind of one of those things where you start to look at it and start to question things about that, the diversity of that field and whether or not that's something that you can even be a part of because it doesn't seem like they accept men in the field of speech. Right, right, right. right. So we're not going that direction. And so I think that is a big part of it. And then I think it's just these kinds of conversations, right? If you have a diverse field of people and we're all working with diverse people, we can have these conversations about different cultures and about different things that we're learning from each other so that we will take some of that bias away. So Mm -hmm. that's a big part of removing some of those biases because a lot of times biases come from, we just, we don't know. We haven't interacted with that group of people. We've heard things, we've heard things on the media or we've seen, heard comments, but we don't really know 
how that culture really is because we've never interacted with them. Right. So if you're in a field of diverse people and you're interacting with different cultures and people from different backgrounds and you're learning their story and you just start to take a whole different perspective, which is going to translate to your clients, to your students, because you're going to be able to see their culture and you're going to be able to accept their culture and you're going to be able to come to them with that perspective of openness and, and acknowledging that, yes, we're all different and that's great. That's a great thing. And how do we all work together and how do we learn from each other and, you know, be in the same space and be able to promote this type of diversity? So I think it's really important for our field to look at that. And I also feel like we're just missing out on so much of so many people with so many talents and so many things that they would bring to the field by not looking at how to make it accessible to a more diverse group of people. I agree. I agree. Very well said. Well, so tell us about how you started working in diversity, equity, and and inclusion, because that really, even with your experience, that work has really only come about in the last couple of years. Yes. Yeah. So, and the funny thing is I started this work from the students with disability perspective. Which is so interesting. I've told this story to so many people. You know, my friend Kamika, she's working in diversity, equity, inclusion, but you originally joined the committee to represent diverse learners. Yes. Even even as a Black woman, your agenda was for diverse learners. It wasn't really for cultural diversity. Exactly. And you said you didn't even really think twice about it. No, because that's my work, right? That's what I do day to day. I live in in special education. And so I'm always, I am a big promoter of inclusion in terms of students with disabilities being included and not being segregated. And so that was originally my call to be on this team was to represent those students that are diverse learners and being able to look at how are we including them How are we making education accessible to them Mm -hmm. and kind of promoting that? And then it took a turn literally when things happen with George Floyd. That's when the more of that and not that students with disabilities are still not. I'm always like, hey, don't forget students with disabilities. (laughs) Thank you for representing. (laughs) Yeah, I still, still am a champion for them, but a lot of the work has now transitioned to this work with culture and race and those types of things. And I think it's just because of what had what occurred. It just naturally shifted. And so we're doing a lot of work in that area. And the interesting thing also about this is in my work in early childhood, being immersed in early childhood for the last couple of years, some of the things that have come up and I wasn't direct, I did not know this and was not directly involved in this, but some of the things that have come up have been this issue with our black and brown children in preschool who are suspended and expelled at a much higher rate than their white counterparts. And you're seeing this in your district, not just statistically in in the nation. No, it's in the nation. In in the nation. Statistically, it is a problem. And I was not aware of this until I started my work in early childhood and starting to look at those pieces. And for me, I was like, how are we suspending and kicking kids out of preschool? Of preschool. (laughs) And, and, you know, because, you know, it's important that they get the prerequisite academic skills in preschool. But when I think of preschool, my own kids in preschool and my clients in preschool, 
more than anything, I think you want them to love school. Yes. And it's really should be a time for learning and being inquisitive and play and finding things out and socializing, you know, all that academic stuff will come later. But it really is about kind of just building this love for learning and a love for socializing and being with other people. And they're respecting your teachers and you know, loving those teachers. Yeah. And it's just been very interesting to learn that our black and brown children are actually experiencing this as early as three years old. There's a lot of articles and a lot of discussion around this. There was a study, and I'm not recalling off the top of my head, I don't remember which university did it, but they did a bias test with preschool teachers. And they had a group of kids mixed, you know, there were some brown boys and some brown girls and some white boys and some white girls. And they told the teachers that some of the kids are misbehaving and to identify the kids that are misbehaving, but they didn't tell them who was misbehaving. They just said, watch for who's misbehaving. And they noticed that the black and brown children were the ones identified as the one having behaviors even though none of the students were misbehaving. And it was just an interesting, and I'll I'll have to find the the name of the study. I have it. I have to, and I'll share it with you. But that's the implicit bias coming through. Mm -hmm. There's this implicit kind of thought process and you don't realize it. And it's so important as educators, as speech language pathologists, that we are build that awareness because we are interacting with families of a variety of different cultures, a variety of different backgrounds, a variety of different skin tones. We are doing that on a daily basis. And what we walk into that room with is very important. And if we're walking into that room with a bias, does it impact our care? Does it impact our recommendations? What does that look like for us if we are coming into the room with a bias? So I think personally as an SLP, It's something all of us need to do work on and kind of acknowledge that we all have those and address them. I have this gentleman that I work with for coaching. He coaches us on coaching and he always says, if you can name it, you can tame it. And I love that, that saying, because it's true. If you can name it, if you can acknowledge that, then you can deal with it. And Mm -hmm. it's not to say it'll never come up or that you won't ever have it. It just means that, okay, I know what this is let me fix it, Mm -hmm. you know? And Mm -hmm. so I think that's so important as an SLP because of what we do. And I think acknowledging those biases as teachers, as speech language pathologists, I mean, we all went into this profession to be helpers. This Mm -hmm. is a helping profession. Mm -hmm. And, you know, most people, if not all people become speech language pathologists to help others. So to admit these biases can be hard for people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think that's human nature, right? Yeah, we yeah. all would love to, to, <laughs> we all would love to say we are. <laughs> we didn't, we mentioned this in a, a recent episode, you know, we didn't become speech language pathologists to become gazillionaires, you know, we, <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> if we did, we might want to go to a third career, right? No. <laughs> um, but we did because we wanted to help others. So saying, you know, admitting those faults can be hard. Yeah, yeah. But but very important because we need to name it to tame it. I love that. (laughs) And I think it's important for us to realize that there's no reason to be 
ashamed or feel guilty or in any negative manner that we have these biases. I mean, they're there because of a variety of different reasons. I mean, the media portrays certain groups of people in certain ways. We haven't interacted with certain people in Mm -hmm. certain ways. I mean, there's so many reasons why we have these biases. And it's not, I think the more important thing is acknowledging them and moving forward. Yes. Don't feel guilty. Like, I think if you're doing the work, that's a positive. Mm-hmm. Pending like you don't have them, that's that's when the problem happens. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Which is what I realized. So yeah, that is so important. So thank you. Thank you for saying that. That coming from you can help so many people. So thank you. Yeah, I work on it every day, every day, (laughs) my own. (laughs) I love the story that you told about the Asian American student. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that was one of, so this is a, I can admit this is a personal bias that I have had and did not realize I had or didn't even realize it was a bias. And so, you know, there was this in my head assumption that the majority or all Asian American students are smart. You know, they're just all super smart. <laughs> and, you know, they're all in AP classes. and Good you know, students, too. Yeah, yeah. They don't have behaviors. They're the ideal student. And through my work in this journey and through my work in the DI group, we had a training on what's called the mythical minority. And it was from an Asian perspective. And what was interesting about it was that they, and there was a student panel. So there was a student panel part of this training. And what the students expressed was that this idea that they are all smart to this big generalization, sweeping generalization. And when you realize how, what encompasses that category of Asian, like, you're like, whoa, like, whoa. <laughs> that's a big sweeping statement. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Huge generalization. Yes. But they said this generalization actually is hurtful for them in terms of that they are expected not to ever get in trouble at school. Mm-hmm. They're expected to behave a certain way. They are expected to be the smartest one in the class. So teachers don't readily give them assistance. Teachers don't check in with them to see if they need assistance because they automatically assume they've got this. And there's just kind of this whole idea. And then they also feel like they need to go certain paths. So they're expected to go the honors path or expected Mm -hmm. to go the AP path. And that's not necessarily what they want to do. But it's this whole idea that has been this whole big bias that has been put on them that's causing them to have to then, you know, have this experience. Mm -hmm. And, and it was very interesting listening to it from a student perspective, because that is definitely something that I've not ever thought of. And because it's what we would consider a positive statement, right? Right. You don't Mm -hmm. think that's a bias or a bad thing. Like that's positive, but it's a bias. Right, <laughs> and, right. And it's a big oversweeping generalization. And it actually does have a negative impact on our students. And in this group, one of the students who was actually a student, because it was a diverse panel of students, she was actually a student that was an African American student. 
And she was feeling, they were in a math class. A, I don't know if it was honors or AP, but it was a higher level math class. And she was actually feeling the opposite, right? Like she was struggling and she was having a hard time, but she didn't want to raise her hand and ask the teacher because she felt like she'd be fulfilling that prophecy of, you know, women aren't good at math and, you know, African-American women are, are definitely not good at math, you know, that kind of thing. So she didn't want to want to ask the teacher. So she went to the Asian girl in the class and said, hey, I know you get this. Can you help me? And the Asian female student replied, I don't get this. (laughs) I'm Ah. struggling. And, you know, but she was afraid to ask the teacher for help for the opposite reason. So it was just a very interesting dynamic, which, you know, kind of goes to say we should not have these ideas about anybody. Everybody is an individual person. Everybody's experience is different. You cannot group a bunch of people together and make an assumption. Mm-hmm. And so it was just very interesting hearing this kind of perspective of this, what we would generally consider a positive, you know, compliment or, you know, way of thinking about a group of people. And then this negative way of thinking about a group of people. And when they interacted, they were both feeling the same way. Exactly. Because of this generalization. And then you take it from the perspective, these kids are in high school. So they've had, you know, by the time they're in upper level math, you know, they've had 10, 12 years of feeling this way, which is why it is so important to have early intervention in Mm -hmm. diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, And the work that you're doing and overseeing in early childhood education is so important. Yeah, it's really important. And I think one of the other things for our group, especially in that early intervention, you know, one of the things we are tasked with, and I think this impacts people culturally on such a huge level, is, you know, we're the ones that are in there giving people the keys to communicate, right? We're giving them the tools, whatever that might look like for that family. And I think one of the big things for us as SLPs, and again, checking our biases, is remember that a student's language is a part of their culture. And to take that away from them and not include that is a big thing that I hear still sometimes we're doing where our, you know, like in terms of AAC devices, let's use that for an example, making sure they're programmed in that student's home language as well as in English. A lot of times we don't do that. We automatically go for English, right? That's what we right, do. Right, right. Yeah. But that student communicates with their family, maybe in a different language at home. And that language is a very strong part of their culture. Maybe that's the only way they can communicate with grandma and grandpa. Maybe that's just something that they, you know, their family enjoys communicating together in that way because it is a part of their culture. So it's really having those conversations and not putting our biases on what we think is the most important piece of what a student should have. So really looking at our intervention through that diversity, equity, and inclusion lens, I think is really important. Well, thank you. So what can we do? So that's, we're talking about what we can do in the field. And I think we'll get back to that. But what can we do individually as speech language pathologists to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion? I think the biggest thing as an individual, and we've kind of been talking about this the whole time, is just making yourself acknowledge and work on those biases. I think that's the first, and I think that's the major step. You cannot move 
forward with any of the other work until you open yourself to that. And so I think if that's the only thing you take away from today, that is the biggest thing is really start to become aware, acknowledge and work on those biases that we all have and start to think about how do they impact my practice? How do they impact my interactions with families? How do they impact my interactions with students? How do they impact my interactions with colleagues? Mm-hmm. So just really, that's probably the biggest thing that I think people struggle with. And I think that's the biggest barrier to being able to move forward to promote this work. Okay, thank you. And you actually have, okay, that's number one. Number one, we're, <laughs> we're, we're naming it and we're taming it, right? <laughs> we got that. But in our discussions, you have told me about a book club mm-hmm. that you joined. You didn't start it, right? No, you joined no it? it was a statewide book club that the state of California, that was actually started out of Los Angeles. The LA County Office of Education actually was the one that facilitated it. But in California, we've been doing a lot of work with our Department of Ed and just around our state around this work. And so a book club came out of that, a statewide book club. And we actually had people from other states join this book club. I'm not sure how they found out about it, yeah. <laughs> or maybe their friends invited them. I don't know. But it was a big part. And again, I had already been on this journey with some other work that was being done. But this, I think, was the most impactful for my personal journey, but then also giving me the confidence to bring that back to my workplace and start to facilitate this book club through our DEI work group on our own. So, and that kind of, you know, so kind of trickled down. So first it started as a personal piece and the book is How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi. He has a podcast as well, very well-written book. And what I think it helped and which I think is like kind of that in this book, you'll kind of start to unpack a lot of these things. Bias is one of them. The second part is like just being aware of policies and procedures and practices that actually allow for racist types of behavior to still occur. That's something that we tend to get caught up in the people and saying things about people being a certain way, but it's really what we should be focusing on are what are these ongoing policies and practices that are happening and how do we change those? And so that's what his focus was. And that really changed my perspective on this work and what's the best way to move forward in this work is to really start questioning those policies and procedures. And you can do that on a personal level because, you know, we all vote, we all look at things in our community as an SLP. We're part of a a bigger organization and professional organization that we have a voice in how things are happening in that organization. So we can look at policies and procedures on a personal side of our life, which I think is very important. And then we can also look at it on a professional side or an organizational side. So start to question things within your organization, start to question how things are handled. Is this promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion? Is this policy inhibiting it or preventing it from happening? And so just kind of being aware of that now, which is something I wasn't really aware of. And especially I think as a speech therapist, you kind of have your bubble, right? You kind of have your focus. (laughs) You have your productivity, you know, (laughs) there are a lot of expectations and it's, you know, it's hard to add one more thing, but it is 
it is important. It is so important. It is. It is. And I think it's important for us to be a part of these conversations. And you're right. It's one more thing. Being part of this diversity equity work group is one more thing on my plate of my, you know, my day to day. We always tease about, you know, when you're working, there's those other duties as a sign that aren't, you know, right. <laughs> and that's how this started. It was an, another duty as a sign, but it's turned into something so much more. And, you know, the work that I'm able to do because of being a part of this and just being able to facilitate these kinds of conversations with other people, it's been really helpful and really eye-opening. And it's really helped me, I think, grow professionally and personally in working to ensure that all people have these opportunities and to really promote this work. So I think getting involved as an SLP, get involved at your, whether you're at a school district, whether you're at a hospital, like... Again, I know, you know, you're busy, everybody's busy, but really getting involved in the conversation and being a voice to promote this work. Well, one thing I really liked about your book club was that you, and, and being busy, you guys read one chapter at a time. So, so we, we actually read two chapters. Oh, two chapters. Time. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But you made it, you, you simplified it in yes. order to make it doable for people. So yes. yeah, tell us a little bit about the way it worked. And then the way, if did you, when you set up the new book club, did you do it the same way or? Yes. The way it was originally set up, it was two chapters at a time. And then it was a very interactive, even though we were virtual because we're still, you know, all this is happening during COVID. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> we were virtual. And so we met on Zoom and we would have breakout rooms and they had questions to kind of facilitate these discussions. It was not a traditional sit and get type of workshop where you're just getting thrown information at you. It was very much an interactive discussion and listening and learning from each other, which is something I really enjoyed. And so we would read the chapters and then the next week they had some like kind of facilitating questions and then we'd go into smaller breakout rooms and then we'd come back to the bigger group and then people were given the opportunity to share out in the bigger group if they felt comfortable. So there was this level by the end of the book club, there was this level of trust that we had built with each other. And, mm -hmm. and you can see, and I saw this as we started facilitating other book clubs, you could see like in the beginning, people are quiet. Like nobody right. wants to talk. Right. I mean, you always have those talkers. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. me, like, blah, blah, blah. you know, yeah. we always have those people. But for the most part, you know, you're trying to figure out this space because right. it, it is a very hard conversation. It puts you in a vulnerable space and you're not sure if you can trust these people, right? These are people from all over the state, but they did a really good job of setting up norms and really building this safe space for us to have these conversations. So I was so, and there was a group of some of us here at Orange County that are part of the DEI work group. They were part of this book club as well. So that was really nice. There was about, I think there's five of us that were, ended up doing the book club too. So we would meet after our small group and just kind of like debrief. And then, you know, we got to the point where we we're like, we need to do this in our organization. We need to do this in our divisions. And so I originally brought it back to my principals and my leadership team. And we've been doing it. We're almost done. We're more than halfway through the book. And so we've been doing it still via Zoom. 
and same format. Changed it up a little because the state book clubs were 90-minute sessions and we didn't have a 90-minute block of time. We still did the two chapters, but cut out some of the activities and things like that that were done, some of the journaling types of activities. I really felt the discussion pieces were the most important. So we kept those to make sure people had time to discuss and, you know, debrief with each other and things like that. We've started it now with another division, just started it maybe three weeks ago. Yeah, I think we're, we just did our third session this week. Same format, pretty much following what we did. But again, we had to cut it down a little bit just because of time. So our leadership team and our, we made it mandatory for our leadership team, for our division that I'm helping facilitate with, it's voluntary. Those are things you have to consider within your organization and within the group of people you're working with. It is a very sensitive topic. You discuss very vulnerable, sensitive things. And so some people feel that it should be voluntary work. It should not be mandated or made, you know, mandatory. My leadership team felt like it should be mandatory. (laughs) And that as educational leaders, we need to be doing this work. And so we decided to make it mandatory. Um, We also included things like implicit bias training into our staff development days with our teachers and staff. So we are more so kind of facilitating this or filtering this through or integrating this through things. It's not really optional. It's like, This is the work we're doing. Whereas the other group I'm working with, same organization, just taking a different perspective or a different kind of like getting people to gradually do this work because they want to do it. So again, I think that's very personal and that's very much, you know, your organization, you know, your group of people and you have to make those decisions based on the type of place where you're, you're trying to integrate this into. Personally, I think everybody should be doing this work. <laughs> but I know, yeah. you know, you can't force everybody to do <laughs> right, it. Right, right. <laughs> but I do think everybody should be doing it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like it was very beneficial to everyone. It has exponentially, you put a teacher who has been able to have that training, you put her in the classroom and the impact that she can have on her students So hopefully years down the road, we won't be hearing about high school students who are afraid to ask a question because, you know, for for whatever reason, you don't want kids afraid to ask a question. No. And I can tell you from the groups, both groups, the voluntary group and the mandatory group, it's all been positive. I mean, the feedback has been positive. People have really felt like they've grown. And I mean, even when we did the implicit bias from our teach for our teachers and staff, the feedback we got back from them was was super positive. So I think people want to learn and do this work. And I think it's just, you know, giving them the opportunity and, and making sure that opportunity is available for them. So I think that's the important part of it is making sure this is a priority in whatever organization or, or where you work is important and in our field. And I feel like, you know, ASHA is doing that. I feel like I give them credit for looking at different things and having these conversations here in California. I know Kasha has done a bunch of stuff and work around this area as well. So I'm positive and feeling positive that even our professional organization itself. And I mean, just the fact that we're sitting here having this conversation right Right. now. (laughs) 
Well, I definitely see the field of speech language pathology moving into a positive direction with diversity, equity, inclusion. As you said, you know, what ASHA is doing to promote that and what we are doing on an individual basis as well as collectively can only be positive if we work at it, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay, Kamika, before we go today, I wanted to talk about the handout that you have provided. And I just want to say I love these embedded resources. So if you go to this course on speechtherapypd.com and look at the handout, Kamika embedded links to different YouTube sites and other resources. So it's really easy to access. And I wanted to go over it because we talked about a lot of different things today. Really like the way that you created a concise handout to just if you want to refer to this in the future. So let's talk about the two quotes that you have on the handout. I just love these and I feel like they summed up our conversation so well. Okay, so these two quotes actually came from I go on a lot of trainings about inclusion, especially for students with disabilities. And so recently, we have a big thing across our state, across the state of California for inclusion, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so this was one of the trainings that the state actually put on, and they had the presenter come out. And he utilized these quotes in our training. And I agree with you, Mary Beth, they just kind of sum up everything really well. So I kind of have held on to them because of that. So the first one is by Verna Myers, who I haven't deeply delved into her work. But she is an activist and she says diversity is being invited to the party and inclusion is being asked to dance. And I think that is such a vivid picture, gives you a really good visual of what that looks like. Mm -hmm. So if you're talking about students with disabilities, for example, a lot of times we'll say they're included just because they're in the physical space of the classroom. But if you look around, they're not engaging with the other students. The teacher's not engaging with them necessarily. Maybe they have a one-on-one aide who's doing exactly. the work. Mm-hmm. Yes, your class is diverse. The makeup of your class is diverse, but that student's not included. So mm-hmm. when that student is included, they're invited to dance. So they mm-hmm. are part of the classroom when you walk in. Mm-hmm. And that goes for any group, any group of people. If they're not, if they're only in your physical space, yes, you can say we have a diverse group of people in our organization. We have a diverse group of this. But if you're not listening to their voices and taking into account what's important to them, then they're not being invited, asked to dance. So they're just there for the purposes of you saying, yes, I have a diverse group of people that I'm working with. So I think that's the important part. And just visualizing a room of people still, and then a room of people dancing. And if there, if everyone in that room has been invited to dance, what a better party, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So the second quote, that kind of leads into the second one, which is the author is unknown, but I really still like this because it kind of uses those key terms that we talked about. So diversity is a fact. And I, when I see that first phrase, I just think that the bottom line is we're all diverse. There's no way around it. You're going to have diversity in your organization. You're going to have diversity in the group of, in your community. Diversity is a fact. We're not all the same. Equity is a choice. And I think that calls to us to be able to realize and be aware that we have to make that choice to make sure that everybody is provided access and choices and are allowed to come, you know, come to the party. Everybody should be able to do that. But that's a choice because we can exclude people. We don't have to make it easy for them to access, whether it's our field of speech language pathology 
or whether it is a student with disability or an individual with a disability being able to get a job. Those are all things that we have to make a choice. And then the last part of that quote, or actually the middle part, is inclusion is an action. And I think this goes back to the other quote that we just talked about, being asked to dance. So if you are actually including people, you're engaging in conversation with them, you're talking to them, you are making sure that they feel comfortable, you're making sure that your organization or your field or your classroom includes everybody and everybody has a voice. And that's an actual action that you can see. You can see when people are included. And then the last part is belonging is an outcome. And I think that is really, really key to this whole idea of diversity, equity, inclusion. Everybody wants to feel like they belong. And I think if we do all those steps that I'm going to talk about, that we talked about earlier, and then I'll review in this handout, then people will feel like they belong. And I think that's the outcome that we all want, but we do have to take actionable steps to make sure that that happens. Exactly. I love that quote. And belonging is so important to our students, to our field, to our nation. Mm -hmm. So to our world. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, you know, that's what we see right now. And all the, I think what we're experiencing right now as a nation is, groups not feeling like they belong. And then we see what the outcome of that is. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of where we are right now. So Kamika, you've always been a great student. And here you outlined these key steps for us with these resources. So thank you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So key steps, you have four key steps. So why don't we review them all? And then we'll go through each one individually and talk about the resource, one or two of the resources that you've provided. Okay, sure. So we kind of, you know, had a very long conversation, a great conversation, and we talked about each of these steps, but I wanted to really make sure we pointed them out so people, when they reference back, they would could just pick out those important pieces. So when you're doing this work of diversity, equity, inclusion, you want to first, and I think this is the critical step before you can do any other work, is increase your awareness of implicit bias. As I said, when we in our conversation, we all have it. And so the only way to confront it or to take care of it is to make sure we're aware of it. So and that kind of goes back to that phrase where we talked about if you name it, you can tame it. So Mm -hmm. that's part of that. The second part is you want to work towards cultural proficiency. And the reason I say work towards is because it's a lifelong learning experience. No one's ever going to arrive or be like, oh my gosh, I am culturally proficient. (laughs) That's not going to (laughs) happen. It's every day. Yes, every Every day. Every day effort. Yes, absolutely. And so you're always just working towards that and making changes and adjusting based on your new learning. The third thing is you want to start to question those practices and policies that are in place, whether that's within your community, whether that's in your organization where you work, whether that's in our organization as speech-language pathologists. You just want to start looking at what are these common practices and policies that are in place that maybe have just always been in place, Mm -hmm. and are they a barrier or are they promoting diversity, equity, inclusion? So really start to question those. And one of the things I always think about is discipline, especially in high school, you know, when we start talking about suspension and things like that. 
yeah, it's like, what are those, why are those policies in place and how are they impacting certain students, groups of students? You really just want to kind of look at what that is, what we kind of talked about, what policies are in place at our level of becoming trained as SLPs in our programs. Mm -hmm. You know, we have different types of students now. Do we have some, and policies are usually things that are you know, written and they're kind of set in stone almost. But practices are just things that people do every single day, all the time. It may not be written down, but it's something we always do. So we want to look at both of those because both of those have an impact. So as we said in our field, you know, if we have students who are non-traditional students, and I don't even know if there's a such thing as a traditional student anymore, but right. you know, <laughs> if there's non-traditional students, are programs set up in a way that they can be successful and they can access being trained and becoming a speech language pathologist? So just really start to question those things and ask yourself, are they promoting or, or are they preventing diversity, equity, and inclusion? And then last but certainly not least, this is not an easy conversation to have. Whether you're talking about race, gender, sexuality, or even disabilities, these are all very personal conversations that you're going to be engaging with people. And so this method, the Laura method, listen, affirm, respond, and add information, is just one of the kind of frameworks that you can use to engage in these types of conversations. It actually, I think, originated with like kind of conflict resolution type of things. Okay. But it really does make sense to utilize this when you're kind of delving into these personal conversations with people. So listening is important. And when I say listen, I mean, listen to hear, not to respond. A lot of times what we do is we're listening to the conversation and we're already formulating our response in our head, mm -hmm. right? So we're, we've missed half the conversation because we're formulating this response and we're like, when is it my turn to speak so I can give my response? And so it's okay to just listen so that you have an understanding. And then what you want to do is take time to process that. It's okay to have some processing time. That shows that you're listening and you're taking in what that person said. And that might include asking some conversations, some clarifying questions in the conversation. So that second part is affirm, especially when we're talking about cultural awareness and diversity. My experience is my experience. And you cannot discount my experience. And so it may not be your experience, it's kind of very important to realize that everybody has their own experience and you just want to affirm that. That may not be your experience, but you just affirm that that's that person's experience after you've listened to them. And then you can respond. Right. So after your response may be clarifying questions, your response may be sharing your experience. And so you just kind of want to make sure you kind of take these steps to make sure you have an understanding of the person and where each person is coming from so mm -hmm. before you respond. So important to affirm re before you respond. Yes, yes, yes. Because a lot of times, and I mean, I am, so, I think of this in, as a special education administrator. One of the things I initially did when I started in this role is I would go to very contentious IEPs. So usually that's when I get called into the IEP. And I thought my role was to respond. You know, mm -hmm. that was kind of, mm -hmm. so I was always gearing up to respond. Yeah. <laughs> and now that I've done this for quite a while, I realize that's not my role. My role is not to respond. My role is to listen to the families, to listen to the um, professionals 
and get an understanding of where they're coming from. Sometimes they both have very valid points and they're both trying to get to a place of what's best for that student. They may not always agree on what's best, but they're both coming from that place. So kind of affirm that we we're all trying to get to what's best for the student and then respond with maybe some ways that we can get there together that we are mutually agreeable. So I kind of think of this work kind of can go across so many different levels of things. Right. That we do. Absolutely. So that's the last kind of the last thing, because it's an ongoing cycle. So you're going to kind of be going through these four steps over and over again, and you're always going to be learning something new. So it doesn't just end like you don't just get to step four and you're done. It's right, going to be right. an ongoing thing every time you interact with somebody, every time you're in a new job, every time, you know, you get ready to vote. <laughs> All mm-hmm. those things are going to come into play. So it's just kind of a cycle of these four steps that hopefully will give you a framework of how to engage in this work. Well, thank you. So helpful. And so just running through, I know we don't have a ton of time, but let's just talk about some of the resources that you've highlighted. A lot of them are can be found on YouTube. The first one, Stereotypes and Bias. And this is just like a less than two minute clip, but it really defines the difference between stereotypes and bias and highlights the importance of understanding your unconscious bias. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And those stereotypes, a lot of times they're so connected to our bias because we've heard them over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. So then we all of a sudden have this bias that we've learned. So they're very much connected, but they are a little bit different. And then the other link I gave to you guys is from out of the Harvard Project for Implicit Bias. Um, It's free. You go on, you take an assessment And it will let you know where your bias leans. And so it's very interesting. And they have multiple assessments. So it's not just I saw that for all kinds of different biases. Yes, it's very interesting. And I've taken quite a few of them. They even have one on, you know, gender bias. And I remember one of the people that created this that was part of this project, she said that she actually has a gender bias towards men in terms of that she will always kind of lean towards them more, which she thought was so strange because she said, I'm a working woman. I'm very much consider myself a feminist and all of these things. And she's like, but when I take this test, there's still part of me that leans more towards the male gender in terms of professionalism and things like that. So it's very interesting to do it for yourself because what you consciously think is not always what lies underneath. And they really do a good job of kind of getting to that. And that is called, for those who are listening through other resources, that is called Project Implicit. I think you could just Google Project Implicit. Yeah. And that, or yeah. And if you just put our Harvard project and it'll, Harvard it'll project. come okay. up. Yeah. It'll come up for you. The next ones for working towards cultural proficiency. Again, the first one is just kind of a giving you what is different cultures or what does that term mean culture? The next one is on YouTube and it's levels of culture. And a lot of us may have already seen this analogy of the iceberg for a variety of different things. I've seen it with done with behavior, social, emotional. But what it really gets to is that what we see on the surface. So, you know, you see the top of the iceberg when you're in you know, the ocean, you can see the top and that's all the surface we see. But there's a lot of other things underneath the water. 
that we don't see. So when you look at someone's culture, the makeup of their culture, you can see certain things, right? If you looked at me, you could see that I'm an African-American woman. You could tell like maybe the color of my hair, the texture of my hair. You could maybe know that I'm from a certain part of the country. Um, Things like that are very visual and you can see those, but you don't know what's underneath. You don't know what my experiences are. You don't know my story. You don't know what things are important to me. So you don't know those underlying things that make up my culture. So it just really warns you to be aware of the surface, Mm -hmm. that you're only seeing the surface and don't make assumptions based on that. Right. And then that leads to the intersectionality, which I think is such a great topic. It's actually my favorite topic because... (laughs) It is so true. We are all different. We all, all of these pieces make us up. I'm African-American, yes, but I'm also a woman. That makes up a big part of me. I'm also a mother. That makes up a big part of me. You know, so there's all these pieces. I'm not just one thing. I'm not just African-American. And so grouping me into a group is a problem. I'm not just a woman. So don't just group me into just being a woman and generalizing. So it really makes you think about what kind of generalizations you're making. And remember that everybody is made up of different things and that influences who they are. Mm-hmm. And it's the intersection of those. Yes. And the intersection, another thing I liked about that video was the intersection of all those in the classroom. Oh, that is so important. We talk about that with our teachers all the time, especially for students with disability. Students with disability tend to, once they have a disability, that's their label. That's Mm -hmm. how teachers see them. And they forget that maybe this student has other things going on in their life. Maybe this student has, you know, the student belongs to a family that has a whole other culture or a whole other piece. They're not just a student with a disability. And that tends to happen with our special ed population. So we really need to be careful of that in the classroom. And then number three is basically, I talked about that in the book. That's the book study that we did for our book club. So I give you a link to the book by Ibram Kendi. And then I also give you a link to his podcast, which is ongoing right now. So that's just a great resource to help you start to set yourself to looking at policies and practices. And then I talked about the Laura method. So um, I also give you the reference of who actually wrote that article. And then there'll also be a link for the University of Michigan. There's a short YouTube video on using the Laura method. Okay. Okay. And then the last additional resources, our organization, ASHA, actually has some work that they've been doing since the summer of 2020. They have been busy. I used that link and went on to ASHA to the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Resources. And Asha made me proud. I was <laughs> I was proud of Asha, given the fact that at least what's on the website is only, well, at least the first page of the website was starting in June of 2020. They've really put themselves into high gear and have worked hard to start making some changes. And I say start, I think that they've always looked at things, but kicked it into high gear, let's say. Yes, I would agree. Because one of the things they have on there is their mentor program. And I know that was going on prior to 2020, because I remember getting emails about it and, and reading about it. So they have been doing some work, but I think you're absolutely right. I think in 2020, they just like totally kicked it up a notch and and really are delving into making sure that our field is diverse and equitable And so definitely go on there, check out those resources. Those are great things. And they also show you ways to get involved, which Asha always does. So that's very helpful. 
Um, and then I think the last one is just a video, another YouTube video discussing equity from the student's perspective. I like that. And that was from the Californians dedicated to education. And I loved that video because it showed what the students wanted to be, talked about what some of their barriers are, and ended on such a positive note. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always nice as an educator. And I don't think we do it enough. Listen to the students. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such an important piece of this work is listening to them because they're the ones going through the experience and they're the ones who we're interacting with. But a lot of times as as educators or as adults, period, we think we know best. So we tend to not listen to them <laughs> or even ask them what they what they need. <laughs> we are all a work in progress, right? <laughs> Yeah. So hopefully those resources will be very helpful and useful. All of them are, you know, aside from the book, obviously the book you would need to purchase, but everything else is free that you should be able to easily access and um, find information on. Even the Implicit Bias Project by Harvard is free. You can take all those assessments for free. So. So Kamika, thank you so much. It was so great to have you today. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity. It's something I'm very passionate about. And so I could probably talk for hours. Well, speechtherapypd.com would love to have you back for a webinar when you're ready. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs for this episode and all podcasts offered by speechtherapypd.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines. Keep up the good work.